Last week, I mentioned the death, or I should say, the execution of John the Baptist, the prophet, the one who prepared the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned the devastating effect that that had on Jesus and how after he received that news, he sought to retreat from the crowds to seek some solitude, spend some time alone with his father. But the crowds prevented him from doing that. And instead of getting angry and trying to run away again, his heart was filled with compassion for them. That all came about because Jesus heard uh, about Jesus heard this terrible news about the death of his friend. Today, I want to rewind to uh, a few chapters before that event, and I want us to look at one of the final episodes in the life of John the Baptist. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, and I want to encourage you to grab a Bible and to turn there with me. As we look at one of the final episodes, one of the final snapshots of the life of this great prophet who has a very special ministry um, in, in getting the soil prepared, uh, in getting people's hearts ready for the arrival of Jesus Christ. In, John, in Matthew chapter 11, we read this. When, Genesis, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples... He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And so Jesus is engaged in his ministry, teaching and preaching and performing miracles and healing. And in verse 2 we read this. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, his followers, and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John, in these few verses, is struggling with doubt. He is feeling duped. He believes that Jesus is the one, the the Messiah, the Christ, the, the anointed one, the one that Jews had long been awaiting at first, but now he's having second thoughts. I'm wondering if you've ever felt duped before. You believed something at first, but then you began to have second thoughts. Then you began to wonder about the veracity of it. Then you began to doubt. That's what is going on with John the Baptist here. He's he's struggling with doubt, and he's feeling duped. And it's a bit surprising to me, at least, that John the Baptist, of all people, is dealing with doubt. You know who we're talking about, right? When we talk about John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin. This is the man whose destiny was determined long before his birth. He was to be great before the Lord. He was to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He was to turn many of the children of Israel back to their heavenly Father. He was to go before Jesus in the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah. He was to prepare people for the arrival of Jesus. John the Baptist, this is the man who, when he was an infant, he leapt in his mother's womb when Mary announced that she was pregnant with Jesus, the Christ child. This is the man who spent his ministry in the wild, wearing camel hair clothes and eating locusts and wild honey, preaching a message of repentance, baptizing people in the Jordan River. This is the man who said about Jesus, there is one coming after me, 
one who I am not worthy of bending down to tie the straps on his sandals. This is the man who reluctantly baptized Jesus. Jesus said, I have come to be baptized by you. And he said, you should be baptizing me, not the other way around. But he baptized him and he was there. And he heard the voice of the Father boom down from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. This is the man, John the Baptist, who said of Jesus when he came along into his public ministry, he pointed his way and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. John the Baptist recognized Jesus for who he was, and he said so, and he realized when his ministry was over and Jesus' ministry had begun, his, he had worked himself out of the job. It was now time for his people to chase after the Savior. And yet, after all of that and more, after all that he said and he did and he experienced, he doubts. He doubts that Jesus really is the Messiah. What does that show? It shows to me that even devoted servants of the Lord, even those strong in the faith, even those for whom you have the highest respect and regard as stalwarts in the faith, those that you deem as just the strongest in the faith you can think of in the church, even people like that, sometimes doubt. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of us have faced doubt. And if you say you haven't doubted, then may I submit to you that maybe you haven't thought as deeply about your faith as you should. Most of us have faced doubts. We face intellectual doubts. We face questions like this. Does God exist? Is God real? Is He even out there? I've shared this before, but I vividly remember a time when I was in middle school, a long time ago, and I can't remember how long this lasted, but I remember lying awake in bed at night, eyes wide open, wondering if God was real, wondering if there was anybody, any higher being out there, or if this was all there was, and I remember, and I don't believe this is overstatement, I remember being filled with terror and dread at the possibility that there may not be a God. And maybe you've wondered that too. Maybe you've had that question. We face questions like, is Jesus Christ his son? John the Baptist faces a question much like this. Is Jesus Christ really who he claims to be? Is he really who I have said he was? I I might be a Christian and I've confessed his name before men. But sometimes I wonder, is he really that? And is the Bible God's inspired word? Does this book contain, no, is it in its entirety the authoritative, reliable, God-breathed word? Is this book any more special than any other book? We face doubts like these. We face emotional doubts. Does God love me? You ever wondered that? How could God love me? Will God forgive me for what I've done? Has He forgiven me? 
Am I living the life that God wants me, that He's called me to live? Does my life reflect a a, a God-centered existence? Am I doing and saying what I ought to be? Intellectual doubts, emotional doubts, but in truth, these categories that I've laid out are much too rigid. All of these questions that I have shared are both from the head and the heart. Uh, These are all intellectual and emotional doubts, and there are others beside them. How can a good God allow evil and suffering is a big one. Does Christianity gel with science? Another big one. And on and on and on we could go. But let's focus on John's specific question. The question of John the Baptist that he sends by way of messengers to Jesus. This is his question. Jesus, are you the one? Or should I keep looking? Should I keep waiting? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the one that we have been waiting on? Or is this just a false alarm? Should I just hang up my hat and... and, uh, Suspend my belief in you and wait for somebody else. John is in a tough situation here. We've been told by our text that he is in prison. And he's not getting out. He will stay locked up in chains until the day of his execution. He's in a tough spot. And by the way, difficult or traumatic experiences in our lives often cause us to doubt, as it did for John. When we face transitions in our life, I mentioned the doubt that I experienced. I was in middle school, which means my body was changing, and I was changing. And maybe that's behind this big question that I had about the existence of God. Various transitions in life, a move, uh, a big change in your job or your occupation can, can unearth some really weighty questions. A divorce or, or another Change that brings about great upheaval can bring about questions. Death of a loved one. When we witness traumatic, violent events in our culture, did you know over the weekend there were two mass shootings, more mass shootings in our country? Nearly 30 killed, people going about their daily life gunned down. When we hear news like that, it can cause us to sometimes experience doubt. John is in prison, and he considers, he takes stock of his situation, and he looks at his hands and his feet shackled to the floor and the walls of his cell, and he says to himself, this doesn't look like salvation to me. Doesn't look to me like the Savior has arrived. I thought when God's kingdom came and when the Messiah came, those who believed and had faith would be blessed and those who disobeyed would be punished. But as I look around, it doesn't really look like that to me. And thus, John struggles with doubt and he sends word to Jesus, listen Jesus, what is happening with me doesn't match up with my expectations of your arrival. So please, please tell me, Are you it? Are you the one? Are you really the Lamb of God, the Messiah? Or should I keep looking? Now, we would be afraid to pose such a question. 
I mean, think about it. John has this question about the core identity of Jesus Christ, and he takes it straight to the source. He asks Jesus. And that would be very, make us very nervous. We'd be very apprehensive about asking this question to Jesus, of course, but even to one another. Because such a question seems disrespectful. It seems irreverent. It seems even sacrilegious. And so if we had a question like that, we'd probably just keep it to ourselves. We'd keep it hidden. Keep it under wraps. But, and I want you to hear me on this. Because this is, when you walk out those doors today, I want you to remember this. John does exactly with his doubt what he needs to do. He openly shares it. He does with his doubt, don't forget this, exactly what he needs to do. He shares it. He's open about it. And research has shown us that most students here, I'm talking about young people, teenagers, they doubt their faith in high school. And I doubted mine. And I doubted the very existence of God in middle school. And in high school, studies have shown that most church-going teenagers doubt their faith. But few talk about those doubts. And yet, the students who feel most free to express those doubts to their families, to their youth leaders, to their youth groups were more likely to build a faith that lasted. And I think we can safely extend that to grown-ups, to adults as well. Adults, do you want to keep your faith? Do you want to grow your faith? Do you want to be more devoted, more steadfast? Then be honest. Let's be honest about our questions and about our doubts. Many think that doubt is dangerous to faith, that it can damage, it can destroy faith. But in reality, suppressing doubt is what can destroy faith. And doubt, if openly shared, questions, if openly shared, can actually serve to strengthen our faith. When I doubted in middle school that God was real, I don't remember, there, there wasn't a big momentous occasion on which I stopped doubting, you know, when I just quit and, and that changed my mind and my heart. It just eventually went away as I continued to live as a person of faith, as I continued to enjoy fellowship with brothers and sisters, as, as I continued to go to, to church, it just sort of abated. But let me tell you something that did help, that I know helped. When I was in high school, some of my friends and me from church, or guys around my same age, we had a standing appointment with our youth minister, Tommy Stone. Many of, many of you know him. We would meet with him in the basement of his home for the purpose of talking about our faith, talking about God, talking about the church. And no question was off limits. We could be as open and as honest as we wanted to be. And we just didn't leave the questions floating out there. No, we would study and we would research and arrive at answers, but we were allowed to voice our doubts. And to my knowledge, every young man who was a part of those regular meetings is still in the church today, still in the faith today. That helped me to be able to be open about my doubts. Now, how do you think Jesus responds when he receives John's message? In Matthew chapter 11. Because let's be honest. Sometimes what we do with our doubts is determined by how we think Jesus will respond. 
how we think Jesus will think about us. So what does Jesus say? When John sends by his messengers this very pointed question, are you it? Are you the one? Maybe Jesus will be offended by that. How dare the audacity to question if I am the Messiah? Oh, you of little faith. Maybe we think Jesus is going to scold him. He's going to fuss at him. He's going to slap him on the hand. How does Jesus respond? In verse 4, look at this. And Jesus answered them, the messengers, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He says, John, look, I know that your life right now doesn't look like what you expected it would look like after my arrival, but let me share with you why you should believe that I am the Messiah. You know what Jesus does here? He gently, he lovingly offers him evidence. Let me show you why. He doesn't say, no, we don't ask questions like that. Take that back. Don't you dare say that again. He says, John, let me give you all the reasons why you should have faith that I am the Messiah. Look at what's happening in the world. Now, doesn't, look, doesn't that look like God's kingdom has come? He does the same with Thomas. In John chapter 20, we call him Doubting Thomas. It's, it's the event that sort of defines this disciple of Jesus. When some of the disciples had seen the resurrected Lord, they were talking about it, of course, and Thomas famously said, I will never believe until I see him, until I see his nail-scarred hands, until I see where the spear went into his side, until I touch his wounds, I won't believe. A few days later, Jesus appears to Thomas. And does he fuss at him? Does he scold him for doubting? No, he says, Thomas, come here. See my wounds. Feel them for yourself. And Thomas, on that occasion, believes. And he declares, my Lord and my God. Do you see how Jesus deals with people who struggle with doubt? He does so gently. He does so lovingly. And he offers them evidence. He gives them reason who believe in Him. And when it comes to dealing with people who doubt, including ourselves, we need to take a page out of the playbook of Jesus. We need to follow Jesus' lead. We must create a safe place for people to ask big questions. The church itself must be a safe place where people feel comfortable sharing their doubts. 13-year-old Steve attended church every week with his parents, every week. And one Sunday, he stayed after the worship service to ask his minister this question. He said, if I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise even before I raise it? Kind of a simple question. But to Steve, it was a pressing question on his mind. There was a bigger question behind it. The minister quickly replied, yes, God knows everything. Which is true. But then Steve pulled out a Life magazine cover depicting two African children tormented by starvation. And it was heavy on Steve's mind, the famine, the dire famine that Af some African nations were facing. And this image just 
captured it for him. And he said to the minister, well, does God know about this? And what's going to happen to these kids? And the minister gave a similar response. Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about that. Would you be satisfied with that answer? Steve wasn't satisfied with that answer. In fact, he walked out of his congregation that day and he never again worshipped at a Christian church. I think the minister on that day failed to help Steve work through his questions, his confusion. He gave him an all-too-brief, inadequate answer to one of the biggest sources of doubt that exists. What could he have done better? A better response, I think, is this. Steve, that's a very difficult question. It's one of the hardest that we have to answer. And I've had that question before, and I guarantee a lot of people in this church have had this question. Tell you what, why don't you and I and maybe your dad or your mom, why don't we get together for breakfast or lunch sometime? And let's talk about that question. Let's see if we can get to the bottom of that and figure that out. Maybe you've heard of Steve. His last name was Jobs. Steve Jobs, founder and CEO of Apple, was once a church-going teenager who wrestled with big questions, just like the rest of us. But his congregation, and more specifically his minister, failed to help him find answers. He might have grown up to further the gospel in addition to advancing technology as he did if that exchange long ago had gone a different way. We're left to wonder. Sometimes churches squelch doubt and we say, shh, don't ask that. Those types of questions are not allowed here. That's very disrespectful. Don't have doubt. Just believe. Just believe. But we must be a place where people, as the book of Jude, verse 22 says, where people have mercy on those who doubt. That's what Jude says. Have mercy on those who struggle with doubt. What's amazing to me is that in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is not yet done. After he wisely and gently and lovingly yet clearly answers John, providing him evidence for why he ought to believe. He then, after the messengers leave, he turns to his followers who are gathered, and this is what he says about John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Of course, he goes on to say, but one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Because John lived before the full arrival of the kingdom, and whoever is least in the kingdom, in the church, is even greater than John the Baptist, which is an amazing thought. But what I want to focus on is the first part of verse 11, where Jesus says, nobody, nobody is better than John the Baptist. There has been nobody finer, a finer person has not existed on the face of this earth than John the Baptist. And what does that say to me? Your doubt does not make you a second-rate believer. If you have questions, if you struggle with doubt, doesn't mean you're a lower-class Christian. Jesus praises John. He compliments him. You are not a second-rate believer if you have questions, even if you ask a question like John's. And I guarantee we have all asked this question in some form or another. John's question. 
Even if we've never asked the question, we have done things to reveal that the question exists within our hearts. If we have ever rejected the way of Jesus as our all-sufficient Savior and gone in a different direction, we have shown to ourselves and to the world that we wonder, is the way of Jesus really the right way to go or shall I look for another way? Anytime we go astray, anytime we reject the life-giving ways of Jesus Christ and give in to our fleshly desires, we are revealing that we wonder if Jesus really is the one or if we should look for something different, something better. And so the question is, are we going to say with the great hymn writer, Jesus is all the world to me? Or will we say with the band U2, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Jesus says, there is none besides me, John. Look around. Look at what's happening. Isn't it clear that I am the Messiah? That I am the Savior of the world? So I say to you, be honest about your doubts. And allow others to be honest too. And help them along. Don't just give curt brief answers that communicate that we don't allow questions here. Take the time and and listen and discuss and engage and help people along so that their faith through their doubt can be deepened. Let me say also, Jesus can handle all of our doubts. God is big enough to deal with our questions. Now, we don't see how John the Baptist received the message. We don't get that account in the Gospels. We don't see his reaction when the messengers returned and relayed this message that they had received from Jesus. But I like to think that it bolstered his faith. I do. I like to think that when they came back and when they said, listen, here's what Jesus says, look around, the blind can now see, the lame can now walk, the deaf can now hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are receiving good news. I like to think that John said, you know, he's right. And even though I'm shackled to these walls and even though I'm in chains and in prison, even though this is what my life looks like right now, I know it won't always look like that because Jesus is changing the world. And someday he'll bring with him a a brand new world for those of us who are faithful to enjoy. Yes, Jesus is the one. And I don't have to look elsewhere. I don't have to go searching elsewhere. Jesus is the one. And he's the only one. And if John came to such a conclusion after having heard from the messengers, we ought to note that that would never have happened if he hadn't asked the question in the first place. His faith would never have been bolstered if he wasn't brave enough to reveal his doubt. And if we're honest about our doubt, then our faith can grow too. And maybe this morning, your faith has grown to the point that you believe Jesus is the one and the only one, and He is the one who can satisfy your every longing and desire. And today, you're ready to commit your life to Him. You're ready to call upon His name. 
and have your sins washed away in that watery grave of baptism. Or maybe this morning you're struggling spiritually and you want to come and ask for prayers. We extend the invitation for all those with spiritual needs. Why don't you come right now as we stand and sing?